Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast on this Saturday morning. And uh, today we've got uh, a fantastic speech that was given by Nora Arakat. Uh, she's a uh, Palestinian-American legal scholar and human rights attorney and uh, she was brought to Australia and has been doing a tour uh, of the major cities by the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, and uh, she was speaking to a a full house on uh, Thursday night. Uh, And, of course, with uh, the issues that are going on and the deaths that are going on in Palestine at the moment, it's a uh, riveting uh, discussion about not just... uh, uh, what is happening for the Palestinians, but what's happening for justice in this world. Uh, a powerful speaker. And so I'm devoting the first half hour of the program to this speech. Uh, and uh, we're going to follow up with a, a, a look at what happened at the ACTU conference, which was also held last week uh, on uh, Tuesday and Wednesday up in uh, Brisbane uh, Convention Centre. I've had some reports from people who have said that uh, there's something unreal and weird about spending uh, several days in a conference centre where you barely go outside and uh, long for the sky. But anyway, uh, some interesting elements to discuss with Don Sutherland who has his own reporters. And then we're going to talk with uh, Humphrey McQueen about uh, the right to strike. But uh, an important announcement before we kick off. Fight for your mic. Want to support 3CR's diverse and independent voices? Well, it's not too late and we still need your support. Donate now by calling 9419 8377. Or donate online at www.3cr.org.au or post us a cheque or money order to Post Office Box 1277, Collingwood 3066. Fight for your mic. Yes, we're tantalisingly close to our target and uh, thank you very much for all those people who have given money to support Solidarity Breakfast. I literally need $300 to make my target. So if there's anybody out there who's feeling the love, we would love to get it in uh, a, in the form of cash. 
Uh, as I said, Nora Arakat gave a fantastic speech, a fantastic mind, fantastic person. Uh, so we'll kick off with the first part of Nora's speech. In late September 2017, U.S. President Donald Trump called on NFL National Football League owners to fire players who took a knee during the national anthem. It was yet another Trump display of vulgar disrespect and abuse. Late-night comedy show host Trevor Noah, in response to this, made light of the situation, putting Trump's call in context with the critique of ESPN correspondent Jameel Hill, who was put on probation because she criticized Trump by the news network, by the sports news network as well as mass protests across the U.S. Trevor Noah summed up his segment with a poem. He said, It's wrong to do it in the tweets. You cannot do it on the field. You cannot do it if you've kneeled. And don't do it if you're rich. You ungrateful son of a... No, no, you weren't. That wasn't the calm response. (laughs) Because there's one thing that's a fact. You cannot protest if you're black. And in that moment of sarcastic commentary that has come to epitomize our most trusted news sources, our comedy news sources, our parodies, I was struck with the parallels of my own experience as a Palestinian. Like other Palestinian activists, our protest seems to generate more ire than the conditions propelling us into action. If any of you saw an interview I was able to do with the Australian Broadcast um, Corporation that was clearly on display where the newscaster was more concerned with attention in the Human Rights Council of Israel's violation than he was of Israel's human rights violations. Almost everything that we do in protest has been framed as a risk, a threat, a potential lawsuit that for generating discomfort, as if we, marginalized communities, are mere shadows of an actual body that experiences pain. Consider that during the height of one of the largest prisoner strikes in Palestine in April 2017, when 1,000 prisoners inflicted harm on their own bodies to demand basic rights, the Israeli government declared that it would discipline the prisoners for their deviance. Instead of lauding Palestinians, long and excessively chastised for failing to be more like Gandhi, Israel's intelligence minister demanded, quote, the death penalty for terrorists who joined the hunger strike. In the United States, in July 2017, the Senate proposed anti-BDS legislation to make participation in the boycott of Israel a felony, punishable by minimum civil penalty, $250,000, and a maximum criminal penalty of $1 million and 20 years in prison. Far from applauding our global, nonviolent grassroots movement, Netanyahu has declared it the second most significant threat to Israel after a nuclear-capable Iran. 22 states have passed anti-BDS legislation to trample from the top down what they cannot defeat from the bottom up. As I listened to Trevor Noah and witnessed yet another attack on black protest, I was struck by the resonance of Israeli and U.S. tactics, government and societal, 
that criticize and criminalize protest in order to obscure the root causes of violence that shape our lives and as a means to perpetuate an oppressive status quo. Intersectionality invites us to think about the entwinements of our oppression, not the sameness of our condition, about the similarities in the modalities of repression. It invites us to think about the entwinements of our liberation as inextricable and mutually reinforcing rather than mutually exclusive. Thinking Palestine intersectionally is obviously not new, but present and recent circumstances have made it more urgent and compelling. And so what I'd like to do in the rest of the presentation is to trace the junctures on the ground in activism as well as academic knowledge production that have led to this current political moment when we are thinking to and responding to Palestine in an intersectional framework and not just a national liberation struggle for Palestinians, but something that represents liberation for all of us. Since armed Palestinian factions took, took the helm of the Palestinian Liberation Organization in 1968, the Palestinian struggle for liberation has been part of and often central to global third world struggles against colonialism and neocolonialism. Throughout the 1970s, the non-aligned movement considered the liberation of Palestine from Israeli domination as part of the same agenda to liberate Mozambique and Angola from Portuguese rule, as well as South Africa and Namibia from European Afrikaner and German Afrikaner rule, respectively. The PLO was a member of the NAM and a leading force in establishing the 1977 additional protocols that legitimated the right to use armed force against oppressive colonial structures and subject it to legal regulation. It was the PLO that was part of the movement that basically brought non-state use of force within the ambit of legal regulation. So it shifted from being criminal and terroristic to actually being legitimate warfare. Palestine is the only nation among these nations that has yet to achieve liberation, and that is largely because of the U.S.'s unequivocal economic, diplomatic, and military support to Israel. For a progressive left movement concerned with internationalism then and now, the U.S.'s unequivocal support for Israel is emblematic of everything that is wrong with U.S. foreign policy. And I understand Australian foreign policy as well. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're listening to Nora Arakat, who was speaking uh, at uh, on Thursday. Uh, she'd been invited by the Australian Palestine Advocacy Network to uh, speak, uh, and uh, I just want to tell people that uh, who might be nervous that uh, yes, Kevin will be on at eight twenty. This is the week that was. We'll find out his opinion probably of uh, what uh, is going on between. Russia and America, who who could uh, not have a uh, chuckle over that? But anyway, let's move on to serious business. What uh, uh, Nora is talking about has uh, e- echoes of the uh, uh, anti-protest legislation that's uh, turning up in Australian parliaments, uh, uh, denying the right to protest and to critique the governments that oppress us. In 1975, and at the height 
of the rise of the global south, the UN General Assembly adopted a resolution declaring Zionism as a form of racism and as a part of a broader global effort to undermine racism, particularly as practiced in apartheid South Africa. The 1993 Oslo Accords and the peace process it ushered marked a significant shift away from this framework. Not only did the PLO rescind the resolution as a condition for entering into a peace agreement, the peace process framework shifted the global perception of the Palestinian struggle from one against settler colonial elimination and domination to one about peacemaking. It reframed the entire issue as a conflict between two equal parties that required compromise by both sides to achieve a resolution. The shift was palpable in grassroots efforts featuring dialogue groups as well as in knowledge production. According to a search on ProQuest, which is a, um, an academic search engine, the number of journal articles on Palestine, and specifically if you search for conflict resolution and peace building, spikes from 100 records for every decade between 1967 and 1989 to 900 records a year between 1990 and 1999. The start of the Second Intifada, also known as the Al-Aqsa Intifada in September 2000, planted the seeds for yet a new shift. The first seven years of peace had increased settlement growth in the West Bank by 100% and introduced a new system of bypass roads and checkpoints and demonstrated the permanence of interim agreements in the form of autonomy rather than independence. And I want to emphasize this point. So much of our public advocacy focuses on and emphasizes, look at the bypass road where you have two different colored um, uh, license plates to determine who can drive there. Look at these checkpoints that makes the distance, for example, between Bethlehem and Ramallah twice as long or hours more long. I wanted to say Bethlehem and Jerusalem, but most Bethlehemites can probably not enter Jerusalem at all. My point is to emphasize that this system of checkpoints and bypass roads is a product of the peace process. It's ushered in by the 1995 um, accords known as Oslo II. We didn't have this system before. The occupation was marked by external domination. I think this is a point that we miss when we overemphasize you know, our desire for peace and our, and our lamentation at this system of, of, of spatial separation and segregation and fail to note that it's not in spite of Oslo but because of Oslo that we have these conditions. The collapse of the Camp David talks in 2000 precipitated the renewed uprising, which was much more militarized than its predecessor in the late 80s. Israel responded with unprecedented force unavailable to it under occupation law. It created new law, literally created new law for fighting terrorists and, in effect, a new means of maintaining colonial dominance. It didn't declare its confrontation with Palestinians as war because if it did, it would have to adopt one of two frameworks. Either it's a non-international armed conflict, in which case it could do almost anything it wants, as Syria, the Syrian regime is doing to its population right now, and it's called a civil war, or it would have to recognize this as an international armed conflict against guerrilla fighters, right? 
The former it didn't want to adopt because then it would actually have to recognize that it oversees a singular apartheid regime. If it's a civil war, it actually has Palestinians in its jurisdictions that it excludes from its citizenry. And in the latter framework of recognizing it as an international armed conflict, it would have to recognize that Palestinians are a people with a right to self-determination, which it's denied. So instead, Israel created a new category called armed conflict short of war. Because if it, if it just recognized that it was an occupying power, it can't use lethal force. It had to use just law enforcement force. So it creates this whole new category that the entire world rejects, including the United States. In September 2001, Al-Qaeda uh, attacks the United States um, and creates a new set of laws, even for the U.S. At this point, the U.S. breaks with a historic opposition of recognizing um, non-state activity as, as within the, the realm of criminal law to declaring in the Security Council and UN Security Council resolutions 1368 and 1373 that the Al-Qaeda attacks constituted a use of force that triggers Article 51 or the right to self-defense for the U.S. to use force in response. What does all that mean in law? It means that the U.S. is shifting from criminal domestic policing of what it considers terrorist activities to militarized force against those activities. What does that do on the global scale is that it gives the belligerent the opportunity to use the military force, but makes sure that the, that the target can't use that force in response. The distinction here and what the International Court of Justice determines in its 2004 advisory opinion on the root of the wall is that Israel, because Israel tries to draw on these Security Council resolutions, that Israel cannot do that because Israel is responsible. It is actually obligated to protect and is responsible for the law and order in the occupied territories from where its uh, threats emerge. But of course, Israel keeps pushing back and is creating new law that now we recognize, and that's obviously captured when we think about what it's doing is the use of extrajudicial assassinations. But instead, we know them now as targeted killings. Israel's knowledge production, industry, its military, and its political uh, forces immediately seized the opportunity to collapse its novel military approach with the U.S.'s war on terror. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we're listening to Nora Arrakat, uh, a Palestinian-American legal scholar and human rights attorney. Uh, fascinating stuff. You can see that uh, what is happening in Palestine, legally speaking, is a uh, description of uh, the doom that we're walking, walking towards in general. Let's move on. With the siege and murder of Yasser Arafat, the peace process experiment was effectively over by 2001, notwithstanding ongoing farcical attempts to hold it up on stilts. The end of the peace process, in my opinion, has engendered two distinct trends. One is the framing of Palestine as a national security issue, and the other is the return to Palestine as a justice issue. 
Regarding the former, between 1990 and 1999, there was a total of 655 records, scholarly and media, framing Palestine as a security matter. But now, search in ProQuest, irregular combat, asymmetric conflict, counterterrorism, and that number skyrockets to 5,456 records between 2000 and 2009. On the ground, Israel's militarization of the conflict reached its apex when it placed Gaza under a naval blockade and land siege in 2007 and began launching large-scale military offensives against its besieged population in 2008. Israel literally transformed the tiny coastal enclave into what Professor Samara Asmir has described as a colonial laboratory for asymmetric warfare, for weapons, as well as new methods of war. The return to a justice framework collided with Israel's security approach in ways that resonated with a decades-long struggle that framed Palestinians as freedom fighters on the one hand and terrorists on the other. At the 2001 Durban Review Conference on Global Racism, a legacy of the decade against racism inaugurated in 1975, global participants highlighted Israeli apartheid as part of its anti-racist platform. Professor Nadine Nebir, along with other collaborators, led a front of these efforts by authoring a paper, The Forgotten-ism, an Arab-American woman's perspective on Zionism, racism, and sexism. Detailing the entwinements of feminism and the question of Palestine more generally. The paper never enjoyed the substantive engagement it deserved. The United States undermined the entire anti-racist agenda to shield Israel from accusations of apartheid and to protect itself from having to deal with the question of reparations, which it has still not paid out to its formerly enslaved population and their descendants. In 2005, the largest swath of Palestinian civil society organizations launched the global call for boycott, divestment, and sanctions based on a rights-based framework and inspired uh, by the global divestment movement targeting apartheid South Africa. Knowledge production also evidenced this return to a justice framework. Whereas scholars published 78 articles concerning Palestine as a case of settler colonialism between 1990 and 1999, that number spikes to 952 scholarly articles published between 2001 and 2009 thanks to the efforts of scholars like Mezna Qato, Omar Jabari Salamanca, and Karim Rabari, who are among a multitude of scholars who are doing this phenomenal work in knowledge production, and every piece from every angle counts when we're doing this work. The two trends of national security and the justice framework collided in the summer 2014 when Israel launched its most brutal uh, military offensive against Palestinians in Gaza, and when the Black Lives Matter movement congealed into mass protests in Ferguson, Missouri, in response to yet another state-sanctioned murder of an unarmed black boy named Michael Brown. Especially because of activism on the ground, a resurgence of black Palestinian solidarity commenced, and with it a more acute understanding of Palestine as a case of settler colonialism and structural racialized violence. The systematic and untenable nature of Israel's wars on the Gaza Strip, together with the most right-wing Knesset vowing There will never be a Palestinian state, ever, 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 ever. 
made, which is so, I, I emphasize that because Israel keeps saying there will never be a Palestinian state, and Palestinians keep getting asked, why don't they recognize Israel as a state, even though they did that multiple times over. But this made ever more clear the fallacy of the peace process. The result was the steady ascendance of understanding Palestine within a justice framework. The resurgence of black Palestinian solidarity, which is specifically a phenomenon in North America, uh, featured delegations to the region, knowledge production, cultural work, and joint protest that culminated in the summer 2016 when the BLM endorsed BDS as part of its platform for black lives. Significantly, several establishment Zionist institutions denounced the platform. It was a 36,000-word platform authored by the Movement for Black Lives in the United States about their demands of what black liberation would look like that went from police abolition, reform, education as a constitutional right, basic security to housing and food. And of that 36,000-word document, all the mainstream media emphasized was the BLM's endorsement of BDS and its characterization of the conditions of Palestine as genocide and slammed, slammed the movement, rescinded funding, canceled events, threatened them. And I must tell you that in this moment, they weren't ready for this. The movement did not expect this backlash. And when they got it, they convened a call, the authors convened a call with all of the organizations that had signed onto the platform and gave everybody, something like 200 organizations, the opportunity to pull out of the platform. The BLM said it wouldn't pull out, but gave everyone the opportunity to pull out. And only one organization took that opportunity. The rest stood firm. This was yet another instance of shutting down critically principled conversations uh, when they refused to exceptionalize and absolve Israel's racism. Uh, the BLM's endorsement is pivotal and the reason for major cultural boycott victories in recent history, including Miss Lauren Hill's cancellation of her concert in Tel Aviv and NFL defensive lineman Michael Bennett's decision not to travel to Israel as part of a government-sponsored junket. Both Hill and Bennett didn't know a lot about Palestine, but they knew that the BLM, that the Movement for Black Liberation in the United States saw its future entwined with Palestinian liberation. When Bennett announced his cancellation, he wrote a Dear World letter, and in it he writes, quote, I know that this will anger some people and inspire others, but please know that I did this not for you, but to be in accord with my own conscience. Like 1968 Olympian John Carlos always says, there is no partial commitment to justice. You are either in or you're out. Well, I'm in. You're on Solidarity Breakfast and we're listening to a speech from Nora Arakat. And uh, it's a fabulous uh, breakdown of... uh, uh, many of the issues that are affecting Australia and all other countries with a particular perspective on the role that uh, the uh, Palestine, uh, uh, what's happening in Palestine uh, reverberates across the world uh, and why it's so important uh, to the future of natural justice. This is the final instalment of Nora's piece. 
She is a Palestinian-American legal scholar and human rights attorney, and she was brought to speak to Australia by the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. This brings us to the present moment, marked by the ascendance of Donald J. Trump and a complete and unapologetic embrace of white supremacy. The Trump administration has waged a barefaced and frontal assault against indigenous, black, Muslim, and Latino communities. It has fomented hostility against Iran, though I think by accident has achieved some sort of rapprochement with North Korea, rolled back a commitment to climate change, and emboldened white supremacist movements in the United States. So even if the state's not doing it, the spike in the number of, of white communities and individuals who feel like they can call the police on black people doing the most basic things, like distributing newspapers, having a barbecue, all without a permit, and not understanding that when you call the police on black people in the United States, it becomes a 50-50 chance of life and death based on a, a single unexpected move. But it's emboldened them to do that. Because if the president and the government does it, then it's okay for them to have these feelings. And this reflects, frankly, the inadequacy of the law in order to actually dismantle racism. In the United States, we never dismantled racism. We had an enfranchisement law in 1965 and the end of de jure segregation in the Civil Rights Act in 1964. That's it. We removed impediments to equality, but we didn't ensure equality or equity. And we're seeing it. We're seeing the inadequacy of that kind of law-based approach to justice. But for better or for worse, this movement and what Trump is doing in this rise in white supremacy has further entrenched the question of Palestine into a progressive left movement driven by an intersectional analysis best in- exemplified and captured by the case of Resmiya Ode. I have a lot of love for Resmiya. She's a Palestinian freedom fighter, a former political prisoner. She's a torture survivor, including sexual torture. She spent two decades in the United States empowering Arab immigrant women in the Chicago area. She literally picked up the yellow pages and called every Arab-looking name to find Arab-American women who were not represented in the academy, in the movement, and other mainstream spaces, but who were probably obscured in their homes, here on a visa, non-English speaking, definitely not citizens yet, oftentimes illiterate. And she creates an organization of 800 Arab women, Yemeni, Iraqi, Palestinian, Sudani, in the Chicago area. This is a woman who's leading from the bottom up quietly as an unsung hero. She's also accused of planting a bomb in a Jerusalem market in 1968. She was released in a prisoner exchange, and the confession that actually uh, leads to this indictment was the result of the extreme torture imposed upon her. She was among the signatories endorsing the Women's Strike March on March 8, uh, March 8, 2017, including Dr. Angela Davis. In response to her endorsement and the Women's March embrace of her, liberal and right-wing publications began an onslaught against her as a convicted terrorist and an illegal immigrant. The Women's March platform also endorsed Palestinian liberation, and these created incredible 
uh, controversy in the United States about Odeh and Palestine, but more generally about feminism and whether we should understand feminism as a single-issue matter concerning womanhood or something much broader than that. The New York Times ran an op-ed expressing this anxiety where the author writes, quote, Increasingly, I worry that my support for Israel will bar me from the feminist movement, that in aiming to be inclusive has come to insist that feminism is connected to a wide variety of political causes. This insistence can alienate feminists like myself who don't support all the causes. For example, some who identify as feminists may not agree with the organizers of the international women's strike when they call for a $15 minimum wage. Nor do all feminists necessarily join the strike organizers in supporting the Dakota Access Pipeline protesters. The New York Times, by the way, would never, ever publish an op-ed by a self-identifying feminist disparaging a $15 minimum wage or disparaging the Standing Rock Sioux tribe fighting for its land and to protect its water sources. But... The liberal establishment can easily attack Palestine and Rasmiya Odeh, who is part of the Women's March. Indeed, as the attacks on the Durban Racism Conference and the BLM demonstrate, attacks on Palestine have historically functioned as an entry point to undermine progressive agendas globally. It's the back door when you can't do it and a frontal offensive. But in this political moment, there has been little tolerance for the disaggregation of a progressive platform. The attacks on Odeh and Palestine were read as white, liberal, feminist attacks on an entire movement. No one relented, creating an ideological split and suggested that the days for peps, you all have this word, progressive except for Palestine, are almost over. This is a continuing trend in the United States, and barring unknown circumstances, it's likely to become more pronounced. Support for Israel will increasingly become part of a conservative platform and less of a bipartisan issue between Republicans and Democrats. Polls already indicate as much. According to a 2016 Pew Research poll, the share of liberal Democrats who sympathize with Palestinians doubled since 2014. For the first time, more liberal Democrats are sympathetic to Palestinians than they are to Israel. And support for Israel is the least among millennials, demonstrating a telling generational gap. These are positive trends. And these trends come with tremendous responsibility and urge us to rethink the horizon of Palestinian liberation as well. For example, how might the application of an anti-racist framework unsettle a stark native settler binary between Jews and Palestinians? How has white supremacy in Israel racialized Middle Eastern Jews, for example, and forced them to deny their Arabness to pass thus participating in what Al-Shahat, scholar Al-Shahat has described as an exercise in self-devastation. How does that inquiry reshape coalitions committed to emancipation? Or what other responsibilities does a pro-Palestine movement in the U.S. or in Australia have to anti-racist and settler decolonization movements? How are we actively and unknowingly reproducing the structures of domination even as we seek to resist them in the Middle East? These are very provocative questions, and I don't have the answers for them. 
But one thing that I'll emphasize is that so much of the work that we do is not about having answers, but it's about asking the right questions and asking different questions. It's what Dr. Angela Davis asks us to do when we consider abolition. The worst thing that you can think of and respond when you think of prison abolition is, but what will we do with all those criminals? The question that we should be asking is, how did certain crimes become commensurate with the punishment that's ascribed to them? How are certain people criminalized no matter what they do? And how is punishment needed irrespective of of what you actually do but for the very brazen uh, act of existing? And so I urge us to ask these different questions at the very least. And from asking those questions, from organizing in that way, the answers that we seek will produce themselves. And as Dr. Davis reminds us, freedom is a constant struggle. And in it, we can find the liberation we are fighting so hard to realize. Thank you. Hi, I'm Mo Louie, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM Radical Radio on digital and streaming live on 3cr.org.au. And we were just listening to Noura Irakat, a Palestinian-American legal scholar and human rights attorney. What a fantastic talk. And, Dom, we've got you on the line. How are you? Hello, Annie, and uh, hello to all your listeners. I hope you're all well. Yes. Uh, We're going to move on to uh, some reports that you've had from people who were at the ACTU conference up in uh, Brisbane this week. What were some of the things you found from uh, what they were talking about? Well, uh, I think there are two uh, aspects to this, well, three aspects to this ACTU Congress. Um, Firstly, um, just how important the ACTU Congress is, especially in the lead-up to an election. Uh, And it's a timely reminder, I think, when we look at some of the things that were going on in the week, that the Australian Union movement is really the major representative of uh, all working people and their families, the whole of the working class in Australia, for all of its strengths and weaknesses, it is the very best option in terms of being able to deal with all political parties and also the institutions like the so-called Fair Work Commission. Uh, And there were various things happening, as it does week by week, which sort of remind us about that, including, just as one example, the uh, private sector nursing home owners, the corporations, are now trying to push in New South Wales uh, that uh, all uh, all residents in their in their care should be able to be washed and clean inside six minutes, and that is the expectation that they are seeking to force upon the workers who look after uh, old people who are in residential uh, home care. Now, so when we come to the ACTU. Uh, this particular ACTU Congress, in particular, in the lead-up to an election, uh, we look for the sorts of things that the uh, Australian Union movement is going to say and do in its dealings with both uh, the institutions and with with the prospective new government, uh, uh, which, of course, will be dominated by 
the ALP if there is a change of government. Yeah, well, it's interesting. It's interesting because, uh, of course, governments are missing in action because they've allowed privatisation, wholesale privatisation, which is coming out in uh, workers' conditions. Uh, and we're in a, in Victoria right at this moment. We just had a report about bus drivers going on strike for fifty six yes. cents increase because yes. basically the government has outsourced the. Uh, the uh, the work to a company that's uh, has is an international company. Yes, well, two two of the um, two of the pillars of uh, neoliberal the neoliberal form of capitalism, of course, uh, is privatisation and outsourcing, and then associated with that, uh, the installation of uh, great power into the hands of the corporations be able to drive down the wages who are employed in the newly privatised companies. And so those two things do hang together. The the other thing about the ACQ Congress, uh, general point, uh, two general points about it, is there's firstly what is how the Congress is presented publicly. It's a two-day Congress this year in Brisbane, uh, occurs every three years. It is indeed sort of like a workers' parliament and the delegations of, uh, of union members that go from each of the unions to the Congress have to deal with a policy draft, just a draft document, which is 220 pages and contains 26 policy areas. So not just wages and conditions, but all of the other policy areas that impinge upon job security, job safety, uh, workers' compensation... Uh, immigration and lots of many, many other issues are addressed using that document as the draft and then in various workshops where that document uh, can be fine-tuned. Now, that is very important because it sets the parameters for which union leaders, when they are representing uh, uh, workers beyond their own union, that is, multi-union delegations to government, multi delegations to the ALP, those those policies, as they are adopted, set the parameters. Yeah, well, Don, um, I got the impression that, uh, like you called it, a worker, workers' parliament, and of course there'd be lots of talking um, outside the major sessions, but I had the yes. impression that uh, given to me that it was very stage-managed, but not a lot of discussion with um, a, a lot of the uh, policies that you're talking about. Well, in terms of the people that I've spoken to so far, and I am observing from afar, is that that, that judgment appears to be fair, that it was very carefully managed so that there were not major outbreaks of controversy. Uh, and in some areas, I think there was no controversy. Like in many aspects of the uh, rules, the Change the Rules campaign demands, there is very, very strong unanimity. But around a couple of areas, there is controversy. And so the problem, uh, as it presents itself to the leaders of the unions that have to manage the conference, is how that controversy should be managed, knowing that any controversy will not necessarily be accurately reported to the public and can be used, this is their thinking, and can be used by 
the Murdoch media and people uh, in particular working closely with uh, the Turnbull government and the Liberal Party and other forces to destabilise the uh, struggle to win, uh, to defeat the Turnbull government. So that is their thinking. Yeah, well, they separated the media from everybody else uh, and nobody would uh, do interviews out of turn, which was interesting. Uh, So uh, how does this uh, uh, focus of of, uh, creating a sense of uh, unity have an effect, the ability to actually uh, create uh, policy that... That uh, has strength. Well, I think from what I from what I have been told, there was there were uh, most of the most of the resolutions put forward in the draft policy were not controversial. the The big one, uh, as I understand it, was the uh, the right to strike issue, and there was in the workshop. Uh, that addressed the change, the, the demands that would uh, uh, go with the change the rules campaign, that would be put in front of, uh, uh, put into the negotiations between the ACTU and the ALP about the content of any new Fair Work Act. Uh, there, although there was a lot of agreement, there was disagreement around uh, how to deal with the right to strike issue. Uh, there were, as I understand it, there were two or three specific proposals put up to amend the policy. One of them would have uh, would have required that all uh, that that the union movement approach all politicians to sign a pledge that they would support changes to the law to enshrine a right to strike uh, uh, in their in the in the work that they do uh, if elected to. Uh, to government, and that uh, and that was uh, in the end, although not, I believe, not inserted into the policy, was accepted as a valuable suggestion that each union should work towards. So, what was uh, put into the policy? Do you know? Uh, well, I think the policy was, uh, and I'm still waiting to get official sort of confirmation on this was the policy was it was accepted as it was presented. The second area that I find interesting that needs to be explored in the coming weeks is there was another amendment that sought to say that the right to strike unrestricted should be the priority change to the rules that the union movement should push for. In other words, Instead of having a shopping list in which each item on the shopping list that would mean a shift in power to workers would prioritise the right to strike. You mean and you mean that, that the workers themselves can make a decision to do the, to withdraw their labour without having to go cap in hand to a organisation which is basically beholden to the big end of town. Yes, that's that's correct. In other words that the right to strike is enshrined in the law, unrestricted and available to all workers, not just to members of unions, and it would be applicable in a whole range of situations, including, for example, a grievance at work in which a worker has been bullied or in which a, uh, a group of workers have 
are trying to deal with an employer who is breaching some aspect of the national employment standards or their enterprise agreement, if they have one, or their award. Now, that amendment was not accepted. And the argument that was put forward was that it would be, as I understand it, unnecessarily restrictive. And that the, the although the sentiment, there was some sympathy for the sentiment, uh, it, um, uh, it did not uh, develop enough support. And in fact, also, there was a minority, a noisy minority of opposition to it, coming from one of uh, Australia's notorious right-wing unions, the, shop, uh, the SDA, the Shop Assistance Union, who uh, were almost implying, as I'm advised, that uh, by going uh, prioritising the right to strike, you were, in effect, making it compulsory for workers to strike. Which, oh, what a load of rubbish. Course, Talk about course, a false argument. It, it, it was a nonsense, but it was enough to cloud the waters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was... Well, that's in interesting. To, there was, in regards to both of those, that is the um, the pledge issue and also the um, prioritising of the right to strike. Uh, there was a lot of informal support for that, but that was not translated into a specific change, as I understand it, to the draft resolution. Now, the draft resolution is still quite strong, and I think um, there there are two additional points to make about this. Uh, the new president of the ACQ, Michelle O'Neill, in her first in, in an inaugural presidential address to the Congress, uh, made a particular point of emphasising the importance of the right to strike. Interestingly, however, uh, Sally McManus, uh, we saw, I think we saw a somewhat different Sally McManus at this Congress. At least that's my impression. One of the great things that the ACT has done is make available uh, most of, I think... Just no, but, uh, we've got very little time, very, very little so time. Sally, yeah, what did she Sally, say? In her keynote address, barely mentioned it. And then in a quite a fascinating media conference, alongside of Wayne Swan, who was in the government that designed the current broken laws... Uh, she uh, was very modest, very, very subdued about the right to strike issue. And the focus was being shifted to things like having worker representation on the boards of companies, which in the Australian context, in my view, and we might discuss it another time, is a dead end when it comes to investing workers with more power. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Just cl- that's, another, that's an SDA cloud. The issue sort of... We should use it, you know, the SDA award for clouding the issue. Well, I think um, I think we need to sort of dig in a lot deeper over the next weeks as we get more detail. Uh, overall, I think the public presentation of the Congress was very successful and it reveals a union movement that is developing uh, its uh, campaign. The I think the positive feature of Sally McManus's speech was she very soberly and correctly, in my view, uh, reminded everyone about the problem of union density being at uh, you know, 12 to 15%. Now, there are union leaders who are managing decline rather than developing a movement. And for her to focus upon that and remind people of that issue, I think, is um, it was very was very good. And... Uh, and sobering. What needs to be dealt with is, in fact, 
the uh, elevation of the right to strike so that it is available to all workers actually creates the climate where workers in struggle learn the value of unionism. We have to leave it there, Don. We have to leave it there. Thank thank you you very much and uh, look forward to continuing this discussion. It's a very important one as we head to the election. A weak solidarity Bricky team listener when, after rampaging through Europe and expressing very, very righteous anger at his NATO train killer cohorts who were not spending nearly enough on US of the UN of the US of the world merchants of death merchandise and announcing they were all the foes of the US of the weapons of mass destruction they buy should be used on, Bomb yourselves, foes, fantastic. And castigating Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country, Big Supremo Therese, may not last, for not heeding his advice on Brexit and recommending she be replaced by Boris, US of Big Supremo Donald Trample the Poor said their meetings had been excellent, warm, the best ever, better than best ever, fantastic. Yes, they had all got along swimmingly, and thus, after a round or two of golf at one of his own resorts, owning all those resorts and other real estate across Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country was why the people loved him, he said, and they took to the streets and the perimeters of his resort in their thousands to express their love. After all that, he headed for Helsinki, leaving all those he had got along so swimmingly with, feeling they had just experienced the sink-into-hell bit of Helsinki to meet another close friend, Vladimir putting better than Donald. And it was here Donald's powers of uniting opposites, his genius for resolving differences, was highlighted yet again. His glowing praise of Vladimir managing to unite both sides of both houses of the U.S. US of Congress screaming that he had been outputted before he even got to the first tee. Although we do need to ask why the United Houses thought evil Russia needed to be put or putted in its place. Because it was communist and atheistic and hated the dear baby Jesus. Uh, but now it's capitalist just like you. Of course, of course, we know, and that's the problem. Uh, So it was evil because it was communist, and now it's evil because it's capitalist? Isn't that obvious? Earlier, before eulogising his new close friend Vladimir, Donald had berated Germany for buying gas from capitalist Russia and not from capitalist US of, but then Donald is nothing if not consistent, explaining in part why train killer NATO has to bomb the proverbial out of Germany, unless the weapons of mass destruction they use, heaven forbid, are Russian, which would mean the US of has to bomb the proverbial out of all of them while getting along swimmingly with them. Arising from all of this, Donald discovered Miss Spoke was not just another woman panting for him to touch her up. As he has modestly boasted, he can touch up any woman he wants because women just love being touched up by great men like Donald. But this Miss Spoke got her own back. Thanks to Donald making up his double negatives. A sort of double negative, he said, and obviously when you're as great and busy as Donald, you don't have the time to learn what a double negative actually is, given it wasn't. Although a double negative does say the opposite of what you meant to say, so at least Donald got that bit right. If we believe him, or wrong, if we don't believe him, but I throw that last bit in for balance, but for who would ever not believe Donald? He just misspoke in Monday's version, 
didn't double negative when he thought he had in Tuesday's version, contradicted both in Wednesday's version and so on, but only because the fake news media thought he was answering a question he wasn't answering. Apparently he was answering a question they hadn't asked, true prescience. While all the while both sides of both houses were deciding that if the train killer NATO lot won't spend more and more on US armed weapons of mass destruction to bomb the proverbial out of evil capitalist Russia, well, the good old liberty, freedom and democracy loving world protector US of will have to do it for them. After all, it buys two thirds of the world's weapons of mass destruction and doesn't want to waste all those trillions. And with stable, rational Donald with his finger on the button, it makes for a very comforting scenario. Thus, we mightn't have to wait for Donald's and our very own climate change that isn't climate change policies to fry the planet to death. Poor Donald even came under criticism for ignoring protocol by walking briefly in front of Her Most Gracious Majesty during their meeting of the minds and hinting at what they'd talked about. Serious, serious offences, because protocol is so, so important in Her Most Gracious Majesty's world. Like her two granddaughters-in-law sitting in the searing sun at Wimbledon with their hats in their hands, because it is protocol not to wear a hat in the royal box. Better melanoma than breaching protocol. We mentioned last week one of the boys involved in the Thai cave rescue was from Myanmar, that those families remain stateless, cannot receive citizenship and associated benefits, but are allowed a work permit. Well, it turns out two of them fall into that category and Thailand is considering giving them citizenship status. How big of them? So perhaps all those stateless Myanmar refugees might consider undertaking a bit of cave exploration. Then again, if they'd somehow fled to True Blue Aussie seeking refuge, they wouldn't even get, a, get near a work permit. They'd be locked up for life on an island prison. Uh, sorry, Pacific Island Paradise for the heinous crime of seeking compassion. Not that they wouldn't be getting it, because our Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats and making us secure, Constable Peter Duffer says his policy, our policy, is compassionate. And the Socialist Party says it would be even more compassionate than compassionate, which translates to scouring the planet, desperately trying to find a country willing to accept our responsibilities. Uh, any country, any country other than true blue Aussie. So with any luck, they could be accepted by, say, Myanmar. What goes around comes around. And as far as all those pollies past and present who have practised our compassionate policy, the sooner the better. Back here, two reports over two weeks have excited the caring business class party fossils who have declared they have been right all along and that we can't afford to save the planet because that would kill our coal industry. And although the reports both say evil renewable energy destroying jobs and growth must be the answer and must take over by about 2225 or roughly two centuries after the end of the world, the fossils somehow managed to miss that bit of the reports. And even though the author of the first report says no, it does not endorse coal, they've managed not to hear that bit either. And it must be serious because these believers in small government and market forces insist the public purse must finance new fossils to accelerate the end of the world. 
Uh, but, but why not leave it to the market, laissez-faire, the great corporates you so adore? Because, you know, like, they won't, you know, touch it with a, like, you know, barge pole. So once more, the good news is the extreme fossils prove they are not yet extinct by yet again determining our environmental policy for us, thanks to the courageous leadership of big supremo Malcolm Tunnerbull and the strong stand by the Minister for Fossils, Josh Friedem Icebergs, who has boasted to the fossils that coal, good, clean, old King Coal, will remain our major energy source for the foreseeable future for which, therefore, he doesn't have to look too far ahead. It'll probably be our entire future, thanks to his strong, courageous resistance to the fossils and the fossil industry. And as we fry and sizzle and disappear, we'll do so content in the knowledge that we didn't damage at least one section of the economy. Why did you let them kill us, sub-young innocent will ask? Because, you know, like, we couldn't uh, afford, like, not to. Just thought I'd make this a cheer us up morning, listener. Will nuclear holocaust or World War Three get us first? Or climate change get us first? Monday, as Donald was marauding the world and our local fossils were urging the government to finance lots, finance lots of coal-fired power stations, the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin decreed the most important news on this overheated planet was walk for the brave. These top... Uh, sorry, cops and their good, good, good union undertaking a walk, quote, to help thousands of former officers with mental health problems. And I thought, the mere fact someone wants to be a copper indicates a mental health problem up front. Treat them as they walk in the door to enlist. We can assume their problems stem from not getting enough of why they joined up. Shooting, tasering, spraying, battening, kicking, bashing, framing, especially the long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden working and iron, black armband threats to public order lots. All the fun, fun, fun jobs that compensate for the boredom down at the local cop shop. I'm sure we'll all be donating to that cause. Reinforcing our admiration for the mind-boggling intelligence of our forces of law and order, that body in a barrel they found believed to have been buried there for 15 years. Hard as it is to believe, police said they were treating it as, wait for it, wait for it, suspicious. Good God, who would have thought? Just when we concluded the corpse must have crawled into the barrel and buried itself. Finally, as those who matter were gasping for air at irresponsible threats from the evil ACTU that lazy, avaricious workers should have some rights, good news. The big true blue Aussie, bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, announced record dividends for shareholders. And therefore, wage rises for the workers who made all those dividends for you? If only we could, but unfortunately, the year ahead faces serious headwinds. It would be irresponsible to seek pay rises in this climate. Sadly, the time is not right. Uh, but you must be concerned at this ongoing slow wages growth problem. Certainly, very, very concerned. It's a real worry. Any wonder we know them as caring employers. Good morning. This is Ari Lecker, you're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio, also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka, gets up one talks.
You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we've got Humphrey McQueen on the line. G'day, Humphrey, how are you? Good, I'm very well and you're good self. Yeah, it's good. And uh, you want to talk about uh, the right to strike. I do, strangely enough. Yeah. Um, now, what I really want to say is I sent that all yep. that material down And I'll, I'll put a link for people to, it, great. to for the I whole mean, article because it's a long article. It's very long, but it is broken up into 41 bits. And You've done your back. academic work. Good on you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's another terrible story. <laughs> but uh, about a year ago, uh, Arthur Roris, who's the secretary of the South Coast um, uh, Labor Council down there, yep. asked me to write a background piece on the right to strike, and that's what I've done. But what I've done it, in a way, by breaking it up into 41 bits, the intention is that while it comes out now at about 8,000 words and, you know, very long, the whole point of it is that each of these bits can be taken out and used by people for propaganda or education or however they want to do it. So they're up there for people to use, to adapt. Don't ask permission, don't waste time doing that. If any of it's of any use to you in any way at all, um, then make the best of it that you can. That's what it's there for. Um, and so that's where we start. Um, the well, we actually question. start with the, th- the uh, uh, point that uh, there's never been a right to strike. That's the important point. And they're never, under a class society, there never will be a right to strike, just as there's no right to free speech. We aren't born with any of these things. Yeah, we, we can't be the... Oliver and say, please, sir, can we have more? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, what we've got to do... The reason we have any of these of these so-called you know, inalienable rights is because we've struggled for them. They didn't exist at all 300 years ago. Where did they come from? You know, they didn't fall out of the sky. They weren't handed to us by our lords and masters. They were won by people breaking bad laws. That's how we have freedom of the press. The The editors of papers in Australia... Yeah, under the convict era, were editing their papers from inside their prison cells because the authorities had put them there for things they'd said in their newspapers. (laughs) That's how we got freedom of the press. I found out the other day that the only person who was uh, put in jail over this uh, Eureka stockade was actually the uh, local newspaper editor. Very likely too, because they could get him under a different law. And then, I mean, I wouldn't look. We'll go back to the right to strike thing. Um, there is no right to strike. There never will be, except that when we are strong enough, then whatever the law says, then we can exercise our power to withdraw our labour. That's what we've got to think about: the power to withdraw our labour. I mean, if, if we go back to the O'Shea strike, and it's, it'll be a year next May, and it's very important between now and then that we think about what happened in the build-up to that and afterwards. But after the O'Shea strike, um, there was still no right to strike. The law had not changed, yet everybody went on strike. There were massive strikes. I mean, you know, there were insurance clerks marching up Swanson Street. Um, you know, there were people in every area of life 
exercising the power that they had because the government was no longer game to try to enforce the penal powers. In fact, so frightened were they during the O'Shea strike that ASIO paid the fine on Clary O'Shea because they were terrified. <laughs> that's that's hilarious. For. I mean, that's one of the things it's for. You know, um, and the other thing they did, of course, was that the um, the Labour attaché in the US Embassy flew down to Melbourne uh, earlier than this because they could see the whole pressure that was building up a couple of months earlier and said to the groupers, we're not supporting your candidate to take over as president of the ACTU. We, the Labour attaché in the US Embassy, is throwing our weight behind Bob Hawke because they needed a fake left to control what, um, all of the powers that were going on. Mm. So that's what was happening. But the law hadn't changed. And those strikes went on. And in a way, what we could say is that everything that's happened in the past 49 years has been attempts by the boss class to put us back in the box. They've changed the law. They've done you know all the things that we know they've done. But that that power that came out of there, the relative strength of the contending classes, because that's what we're dealing with when we talk about there being any capacity to withdraw our labour. Um, so that's you know, when we think about the right to strike, we have to think about it in terms of our organisation, our relative strength. And that relative strength includes not just the political level, not just the industrial level in the workplace, although that's terribly important. Um, it includes our understanding of how the capitalist system actually operates. Because if you think that there's such a thing as a fair day's pay under a capitalist society, then you are disabling yourself as you enter into the conflict with your employer. Because it's there not is, the issue, uh, really, is it? Well, it shouldn't be. But all we ever hear, when I say all, much of what we hear is, oh, it needs to be fair. Well, no, it can't be fair in, an, in a society that is based on class control. Mind you, it's these- a working class thing. To, working class people uh, talk, you know, are actually part of the sense of natural, natural justice. Oh, yeah. uh, but actually the... Uh, Moneyed class and the ruling class, in inverted commas, are all about power. Well, indeed. And, I mean, one of the problems, practical problems, in terms of ideas and getting people to active is we on the left cannot afford to surrender the notion of justice and fairness. But we have well, to be Well, what would be the point? Yeah, we have to be careful in saying that if we get, you know, this notion of... Of, of you know sort of slightly less inequality of incomes you know if 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 we bring down the gap between the CEO and the ordinary worker then we've solved the problem no we've solved one of the symptoms of the big problem which is the ownership of the productive forces in a capitalist society that's what we don't pay attention to if we just look at the income that flows from that. So that the question of what is fair is not just a question of the income and all the things that flow around that. The real question of fairness is the question of ownership and control 
over the means of production. And that's something that that we have to get back central into the debate (coughs) about all of these things. Well, uh, at the ACTU conference, uh, it appears that uh, people, the SDA, were pushing uh, the notion that uh, if they strengthen the uh, right to strike uh, uh, policy from the conference, that uh, it would mean that everybody would have to strike. Oh, well, I mean, you talk about... the relative strength of the contending classes, one of the things that happens, of course, is that the capitalist class know full well that part of their strength is their capacity to disorganise the working class. Our job is to organise the working class. Their job is to disorganise it. And one of the ways in which they disorganise the class is to organise it on their terms. And if you ever could think of a way of organising workers on terms suitable to the boss, it's called the SDA. <laughs> and it has been for, you know, too long. It wasn't always the case, but it's certainly been that way for decades now. And we see this terrible situation. I mean, it's no wonder that many young people hate the idea of joining a union because what is their first contact? They've got a job in a supermarket and comes along the SDA and with a sweetheart deal with the employer, automatically deducts the union dues. They know nothing about it. And if you go to the union rep and say, oh, I've got this problem, well, whose side are they on? Not on yours because they've got this sweetheart deal with with the employers. So it is almost inoculating young people against the idea that unions are there to be on their side. So the whole propaganda line, I mean, anything that the SDA said, you have to begin by saying, well, who thought of it for them to tell them this? Um, how did they get this idea in the first place? And all those right-wing think tanks have been sitting around there coming up with these arguments uh, against anything at all that is likely to improve the situation of working people. That's what they're paid for. And a lot of academics, of course, they don't have to be in, in right-wing think tanks. The, the university departments, you know, schools of business have taken over everywhere. I mean, whose side are they on in the class battle uh, over the battle of ideas? So, yeah, it's not surprising there. Uh, there's no way the SDA is going to go on strike unless and until... The supermarkets say, we don't need you anymore. We're not going to do these sweetheart deals with you anymore. Then they get a bit stroppy. Well, you know, that's where RAFU comes in, I guess. The the, uh, uh, Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. Yeah, well, indeed. uh, Indeed, indeed, exactly. And that is, again, the relative strength question. People have said, we're not going to put up with this anymore, not just from the boss, but we are being organised on behalf of the boss by this you know, supposed workers' organisation. And people have done what they've always done, is to organise to protect their interests and to develop this. And that's an indication of where we have to go, that question of building the relative strength, of understanding what the strength of our class needs to be, what the strength of the opposite class has to be, because what the state does... and. One of the problems that the left has fallen into because of the selling off of the old state assets and a whole range of things, like the People's Bank, 
people have fallen into too simple a notion that if it's in the hands of the government, then it's a good thing, and if it's in the hands of a corporation, then it's automatically a bad thing. Well, of course, why is the state there in the first place? The state is there to organise the the whole range of the interests of the corporate class. Um, that's what that's that's why the state exists historically. It and it's, that's there. why we've got the uh, smell of fascism in the air because what it it now appears that they don't need governments anymore. Well, no, I think there's. I mean, I think that if you look for fascism, it is in the government, but it's not old-style fascism, and I think talking in those terms is to misunderstand where the real danger is today. But that's another kind of issue, because the real danger today is not, you know, in a country like Australia, not an overt dictatorship. Um, It is the covert dictatorship. It is all those little things that keep changing at the level of the authority of various state apparatuses. Yeah, That's where I agree. the threat is coming from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, not from, you know, a thousand ratbags on the streets. No, no. Sorts of terrible ideas. It's a bit but like indeed, lobsters, you know, you know, a water, a pot of water, isn't it? Well, I mean, that's, that's where we've got to be concerned about, and, and it's building up in all kinds of ways around us. And this takes us, I think, very importantly, into the right to strike question and the whole question of industrial law. I mean, one way of seeing what has happened um, in the last 50 years is to go back to, the, to, say, you know, 150 years ago when industrial relations, workplace relations, were under the control of two sections of the entire legal system. One of them was at the criminal section and the other was the commercial section. And to go on strike was very often simply some form of criminal activity. The other was that if you went on strike and thereby injured your employer, the employer could use commercial law, which existed supposedly for operations between one capitalist and another, to treat you as if you were a capitalist too and to sue you for the harm that your strike had done. That is called the tort law. Um, Tort is simply an old word meaning harm or injury. Now, what happened as workers got organised through the 19th century is we pushed back against that, and by the early part of the 20th century, we had what Mr Justice Higgins could call a new province for law and order. Now, it's important to see that he is talking about law and order. He's still controlling the workers, but it is now outside the realm of the criminal law and the commercial law. In the in the United Kingdom, there was a whole change to the law around 1908 after a strike in which the employer did sue the trade union and the pressure was such that they changed this so that union activities were to be exempt from these tort actions. Now, in Australia, because we had the industrial law, the Conciliation and Arbitration Acts, we didn't think that, that the tort law was ever going to apply to us. But no sooner had the O'Say strike happened than some smart lawyer in Adelaide remembered that the tort law was still there and began to take tort actions against trade unions in South Australia. But at that stage, 
the union movement and the labour movement was strong enough to be able to get the South Australian government to catch up with the UK and alter the law in South Australia so that it was no longer possible to bring a tort action against a trade union for simply going on strike. However, what we've seen since 1969 is not much tort action, although there is some of that. It's been done under secondary boycotts and all kinds of things. So that what we've seen today and what we've ended up with now is that from having, in the 19th century, been crime and commerce, we've moved through a period of special industrial laws back to a world in which industrial activity is considered to be either a criminal activity or a commercial harm to the employer. And there's been this enormous transformation. And so when we push back and think about breaking bad laws, changing the rules, the right to strike, I think it's important to see it within this long trajectory of where we are. We're not in a situation that we were 50 years ago when the industrial law you know, the old industrial relations club that the bosses complain about, the conciliation and arbitract, all of the ways in which that held the labour movement under pretty tight control, it was still there and it did provide certain protections, if you like, because we weren't subject to crime and to commerce. Now we are. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? This is at the same time as... uh the police forces are being paramilitarized, and uh, you could argue, and uh, the federal government is looking at laws that will put uh, potentially people in jail for standing across a road to stop trucks going into a coal mine. Well, that too, and if you look at these new powers that have been claimed to protect against terrorist activities, you know, um, basic national assets like power stations and etc. I wondered whether that would fall under the activities of many Victorian people during the MUA dispute. That yeah, would exactly. they declare the wharf to be a national asset under threat from these riotous assemblies which fall under another part of these changes. These are the bits where I think we have to look at the spreading covert dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. Um, it's, it, and what those bits do, and I think it's important to see this, that those new laws, what they do is to reveal the reality of state power. Yeah, they, yeah. Aren't in, they aren't in themselves an overt dictatorship. I mean, if, if we were living under an overt dictatorship, 3CR would have been closed down. Yes. You know, let's remember that. We do still have a lot of the freedoms that we fought and won over the last 250 years. We haven't lost those. Um, and you know, one of the reasons we haven't lost them is because of the things like the MUA dispute, for example, and all the other things, you know, the, the big campaign against um, um, you know, Howard's industrial laws in 2006 up to 2007. You know, all of those things are there. They've held the line. A people's willingness to, to struggle and to go to jail and to fight, and those things hold us there. But what these other laws do is to pull back the curtain and they show us what the reality of class power is in a state, in a, what, what it is that the state is actually there for. Um, now, the other thing to say about the state,
state, of course, is that it is the site in which these conflicts have to be resolved. Eventually, we push against the state. And in order for them to maintain the general rule of the capitalist class, they have to make concessions to us, which is how we got a welfare state in the first place, for example, because we pushed, we demanded public housing, all of those sorts of things. So it's not just that the state is there as something which will always be against us. Yes, it will be in one sense, but we have, with organisation and activity and the willingness to struggle, we have the capacity to make bits of the state more amenable to our interests, not that they're ever going to be in the interests of the working class as a whole and put an end to a class-based system. That's the exact opposite of what they're there for. But struggle is what gives us the opportunity to make the state behave itself um, if you could put it in that kind of polite way. Yeah, well, it's interesting because if you go back in history, you'll see how low the expectations were for the working class and the poor in the past. And well, indeed. And those ideals, those sense of why the organised working class is there. I mean, let's step outside for a moment of the notion of going on strike to withdraw our labour power. Withdrawing our labour... Uh, to be able to stop work after eight hours rather than 16. Mm, that's right. What an enormous step towards humanity, towards a decent yeah. society that struggle was. Because if you're working 16 hours a day, six days a week, what chance do you have to think, to get any sense of how life could be different to you? Yet, people did. People did struggle against that, and they reduced the working hour from, you know, 16 finally down to eight in parts of Australia. And then, in this more recent period, of course, as we know, many people's hours of work have been pushed up, not usually to 16 hours a day again, six days a week, although some 12. unfortunate are in that situation. But certainly the notion of people working 12 hours a day often with unpaid overtime. That's right, or doing back-to-back -back shifts. Oh, you know, and, and scurrying between one job with one employer and another, all of those things that, um, that, have, that, that we've seen come again to serve the interests of the boss class. They're some of the things that are there. But if we think about the right to strike in terms of our relative strength of organising ourselves intellectually, politically, ideologically and culturally so that we understand where our rights came from. Because what you know, the other side want to tell us is that they were handed to us yeah, by the bourgeoisie. Unbelievable. We have you to leave it there. You know, that the king gave them to us in yeah. Magna Carta or that you know, yeah. the king gave them to us in the Bill of Rights in 1689 yeah. the or something. King. You know, <laughs> so indeed. Um and so we need to remind, you know, that we have to, part of, part of the struggle is to get the history of struggle into our understanding of where we are and where we need to go to the next stage. And one of the things I've done at the end of the 41 points is to make a list of about a dozen movies. Uh, that deal with the right to strike in different countries over different periods of time. And one of the reasons I did that is that if you want to get people, you know, who, you are, who are kind of sympathetic to what we've been saying, but haven't, you know, grasped, you know, 
all of the things that they might. One way to get a kind of social discussion going is just to you know get people around to watch one of these DVDs together and to talk about it. Because whether it's you know um, you know Australian movie like Sunday Too Far Away or a wonderful Italian film with Mastroianni called The Organizer, which is set in Italy around eighteen oh, sorry around nineteen hundred, there's a, then of course there's a wonderful UK film about the women in the in the car plant made in Dagenham. You know. Oh, listen, Humphrey, we have to finish. We have We're to right stop, to the edge. Right there. to the edge. We've done at the end. We've done marvelously. Thank you again, Andy. We'll talk in a month. Yeah, and we are. We're right on the edge. Coming up next is Asia-Pacific Currents. We talk, we listened to Nora Erekat from uh, Palestine who came to speak to uh, American-Palestinian. Fantastic talk. We talked to Don Donald Sutherland about the ACTU Congress, as they like to call it. Funny word, that one. Uh, this is the week that was followed by Humphrey Right to Strike. Uh, we'll go out with... Uh, uh, Blue, uh, Blue King Brown, Never Fade Away. The only, only dream I want, the only, only dream I have, in the morning when I wake up, I feel you in my head. All we gotta do is grow, and believe it's in our souls. For the world we love, we'll say it again, never fade away. to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.